The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, Greg and Travis McMichael, the father and son duo accused of murdering 25-year-old jogger Ahmad Arbery, were in court last week for a bail hearing, and we were there with gavel-to-gavel coverage. Court TV's Michael Ayala will give us the latest developments, and then criminal defense attorney Lawrence Zimmerman will join us to discuss the challenges of defendants getting bond for felony murder charges. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinny Politan. Welcome to the Court TV Podcast. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for listening and downloading. We're going to talk this week about the Ahmad Arbery case. And this was the case that happened before the George Floyd case. It, it got overshadowed to a certain extent because the George Floyd case is you know, one of the most uh, impactful cases that I've covered in my career in the way that has transformed our, our system of justice and, and policing in America, etc., but before that case, there was the Ahmad Arbery case, which is different and distinct from the George Floyd case and Breonna Taylor and Rayshard Brooks and um, all the other cases, because this one does not involve police officers. There's one person who's a former police officer, but it does not involve police officers. This is the George Zimmerman Trayvon Martin case with a video. That's the way I describe it. That's, I think it's the best way to describe it. Now, there was a huge hearing down in South Georgia in this case, and it was there were some motions, but it was basically a bond hearing to see if the father-son duo of Travis and Greg McMichael, the two that were in the pickup truck that were tracking uh, um, Ahmaud Arbery and ended up uh, shooting Ahmaud Arbery, Travis the son, while Greg was in the back of the pickup. Um, they both had guns. This was a, a hearing to see if they would be released before trial. And, and bond hearings are usually pretty quick, you know? You know, if, if it's a big one, it'll take, you know, half a day. This was a two-day hearing with testimony and arguments. It was pretty intense, and it really shed a lot of light on the case. So I want to bring in uh, fellow anchor, Court TV anchor Michael Ayala, back on the podcast and uh, have an opportunity here to go through what we found out. Michael, I want to start here. Your, your first impression, when you think of this case, the Ahmad Arbery case, what, what, what comes to mind? What, what, what's your perception of what this case is really about? To me, and, and the defense made some hay of this, not wanting it to be felt uh, or thought of this way, but my first thinking when the first news of this came out uh, was that perhaps this was some sort of lynch mob that went after a black man who happened to be jogging in the neighborhood. Um, I think the defense did a lot to try to dispute that uh, claim or that idea, but it didn't really change my mind listening to what was going on. It could have been any black man running through the neighborhood that day. I think the same thing would have happened. I think what we see a lot of uh, going on on YouTube and on these uh, viral videos is people, one group of people trying to assert dominion and control over another group of people believing they have the power to do that. I think that's what you had here. The unfortunate part about this particular one was that guns were involved. The judge even mentions that. He says, they introduced guns into this situation. 
and that's dangerous. Absolutely. Now, the, the defense argument appears to be that it's going to be they were making some sort of a citizen's arrest based upon their belief that Ahmad Arbery was burglarizing and was a, a serial offender in the neighborhood, kept coming back to the neighborhood and committing crimes. And that's, that was their mindset. That's what they're going to uh, try to argue. And, and we'll get in, we can get into that maybe in a later podcast in more detail. Um, but I want to focus on this bond hearing. And, and first and foremost, Wanda Cooper-Jones, Ahmad Arbery's mother, who played a very prominent role in this bond hearing. Uh, she, she shows up for every thing that happens in court, and, and her voice is heard, which is important. Let's take a listen to Wanda Cooper-Jones. For him, no matter how he maneuvered, no matter how, he, how fast he ran, no matter how fast he ran, or how quickly he turned, these men refused to let him go home. They should not go home now to prepare for their defense, to enjoy their children and grandchildren, and to be embraced by the community. These men are as dangerous today as they were on February the 23rd of 2020. It is not fair for these guys to even get a pretrial release even for consideration, they cannot go home. In the name of justice, decency, and fairness, please keep these men behind bars until they can answer for what they did. I hear those words, Michael, and, and I hear a, a mother who's, you know, heartbroken. This is the worst. We, we see it in all these cases, but sometimes the, the family doesn't speak up as much. And her voice has been very strong. And I can understand where all of that is coming from, having covered these cases for, for decades now. Um, how important do you think were her words inside the courtroom uh, when it was time for the judge to make the decision? And spoiler alert, the judge did not release these two guys. The judge did not release them. Uh, they are still locked up un until trial. But how important do you think what she said was? Look, when you talk about the factors that the judge is supposed to consider, uh, the statement being made by Wanda Cooper should not be considered. But I, I think he's a human being. The judge is a human being. You cannot not be affected by the words that she says. Now, I want to let your listeners know, Vinny, that that was actually the first time she had ever seen that video. She said she had seen still pictures of various parts of it. it was the first time she actually saw it so the emotion was difficult it was raw and, and and all of it played into how she was feeling at the time and and her words portrayed that i don't know how anyone could not be affected by it the judge didn't say anything about that specifically when he made his ruling so i don't know how much it affected him but i do know the defense attorney for travis made the argument that he should go home so he can be with his four-year-old son and then this woman stands up and lets them know, my son is not home. I cannot go home to my son. Got to consider that. I don't know how you don't consider that when you're determining whether these guys can be sent home. And ultimately, did not say that he based his decision on that, but I can't believe it wasn't at least partly in his mind. There, there is a human factor uh, in, in courtrooms. There always is. I, I, you can't separate them. But when you render your decision and your opinion, 
I think this judge is smart enough to know what you put on the record and, and what you use as the basis. And while it could have impacted him, um, you know, the basis that he laid out uh, seemed to be legally sound and will certainly most likely, I believe, stand up. We're going to talk about that more in the second segment here. But I think another big factor in all this, Michael, was the character of these two defendants. And when I say character, um, you've got Travis and Greg McMichael, the father and son. Travis is a son. Greg is the father. And two people who haven't been in trouble with the law before, they don't have a rap sheet. They don't have a record. They're not uh, career criminals. As a matter of fact, Greg McMichael worked in law enforcement, and and Travis's son was in the, was in the service. And, you know, they've done good things in their lives. But then they put on the witness stand um, Zach Langford as a character witness for Travis McMichael. And this guy's like his best friend. And I don't know if they knew ahead of time or they didn't know ahead of time, but prosecutors had their hands on some um, text messages back and forth that they had with each other, Travis McMichael and his good friend Zach Langford. So when Zach Langford's being cross-examined by the prosecutor, um, things get ugly really fast, and, and they sort of uncover a text message that seemed to have some racial overtones. And then Zach Langford responded. Let's take a listen. Do you recall that text exchange between you and defendant Travis McMichael in which he was talking about shooting a black with gold teeth that had a high point 45? He was referring to a raccoon. Okay. No. A, a raccoon with gold teeth and a high point 45? It was being facetious. Okay. To which you responded that this raccoon needed Newport cigarettes. Is that, is that your testimony? Yes, sir. That is an exchange between you and defendant Travis McMichael, correct? Yes, sir. So to me, as this was happening in the courtroom, I was like, this is not good for the defendant. This, because you're, you're calling someone to vouch for you, and, and, it, and it really appears that he is not telling the truth. And it, and it seems very obvious that he's trying to cover up or try to deflect some sort of a text message that they had back and forth. And, you know... Uh, it just and the judge referred to this in his, in, his, in his decision. I mean, this was a big factor. Yeah. Afterwards, um, uh, the attorney uh, for the family basically said that uh, if this is the best you can do as a character witness, then that tells you a lot about who these guys were. But I, I'm going to be honest with you, Ben. I think the kid was telling the truth. I think that Travis, the the, the son, um, was in fact referring to an actual uh, raccoon, but. They threw on top of that all these racial um, epithets and all these racial stereotypes as part of this sort of what they believe was a funny interaction between two friends. The problem is it's on social media. Everyone can see it. And now it's taken in the context in which it is. And you got big, big problems. And so I don't think the kid was being as disingenuous as everyone initially thought. I've looked at it a number of times, Vinny, and that's the conclusion I came to. But you cannot escape what that was, and I said this on the air, that those types of stereotypes, Vinny, are what creates the type of desensitization that allows shootings like this to happen, that you begin to desensitize yourself to who these people are, because suddenly that guy jogging in their neighborhood became that guy with the high point 45, the gold teeth, and the beard, and the Newports. 
they begin to think in that fashion and manner. And that's what sort of creates that sort of perfect storm where these types of things can happen. So they're not innocuous. You can giggle and laugh with your buddies. They're not innocuous at all. Now, they also attack the character of the father, Greg McMichael, the man who worked in law enforcement for years. And they did that through a, a phone call, a recorded phone call. And I've got to think that he understands that these phone calls are being recorded. But let's take a listen. And in terms of danger to the community, I'll now submit to the court a portion of a phone call where Greg McMichael refers to what happened, the shooting, as a good deed. I think about every, every minute. I So what does that phone call tell you, Michael? You know, it, it, I'm trying to put, you know, put myself in the shoes of the defendant who I guess believes he's not guilty. So if he believes that a criminal was in the neighborhood and they were trying to effectuate an arrest and then they believe from their perspective that that criminal then went after Travis and tried to take his gun from him, um, it, is, is it that bad? Is it really that bad, this phone call? Or is it just depending on the prism that you're looking or the filter you're looking through? No, I tried to put myself in his shoes. And when I, I've used that, we've all used that no good deed goes unpunished uh, verbiage. I, I can't even imagine using it in the instance where someone is dead. But I think what it tells me is that, again, they don't value the life of this particular, and I'm going to say it, black man. Um, I think they feel like the situation they were involved in, even with all the stuff they've heard after, um, even with all that came out, I still believe that they think they did the right thing. That going out there, confronting him, boxing him in, uh, going and approaching him with those guns, using racial epithets, all those things were okay because they think what they did was right. And therein lies the major problem here. And we see it time and time again. Folks do not take responsibility for their actions, do not understand the gravity of their actions. And uh, we'll get, we can get deeper into why they think that way, but certainly that tells me that's how he feels. And as a result of all of this evidence, and, and race played a huge part of it in this bond hearing over the course of two days, uh, they did not get released. Now, I wasn't surprised by this, Michael, because there was a prior bond hearing for the third defendant, Roddy Bryan. He didn't have a gun that day. He had a cell phone with a camera on it. So I'm thinking if the judge denies bond for the guy with the cell phone and camera, he's certainly not going to grant bond to the two guys with guns. Right? Is it that simple? Well, first of all, Vinny, he had a dangerous weapon because there is evidence that he hit. There were clothing fibers of Ahmad Arbery's clothes on his car, and a car is considered a dangerous weapon in Georgia. So he did have a dangerous weapon, number one. Number two, as you mentioned very early on, 
it's a different world we're in now, Vinny. This happened before George Floyd, before Breonna Taylor, before Jacob Blake. It's a different world now. And he said, when he said he wasn't going to give them bond, that I don't trust you guys to respond. That video tells me everything I need to know about you. That if I set you back out into this world, a very different world than it was back then, this is how you might respond. You might respond with a gun. And you haven't really shown any remorse. And you show no problem using whatever influence or little influence you might have to influence witnesses, to influence people's opinions on this case. So I'm keeping you in. So I don't think it was that simple. I don't. I think he was made a very reasoned and strong decision and the right decision. Michael Ayala, Court TV anchor. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Great to have you on the podcast. Always a pleasure, Vinny. Anytime. All right, folks. Now, to me, it's, it's, there's also a level of context to every decision that's made. Our system of justice, it's, it's you know, lady justice is blind, so it's got to be distributed evenly, right? D- regardless of uh, other factors that you might look at that might influence a judge, it's got to be uh, distributed the same way. So what happens in felony murder cases in the state of Georgia? Okay, does anyone ever get out on bond? And if so, under what circumstances do they get released? Because these three guys did not get released. So when we come back, we're going to bring in the president of the Georgia Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, Lawrence Zimmerman, who knows this better than anyone in the state of Georgia, who gets out on bond, who doesn't get out on bond, and and how these decisions are made so we can put a little bit of context into what happened down there in South Georgia in the case involving the shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery. We'll be right back. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. It's the case, Your Honor. It's our case. Watch the video, and you will be persuaded of a predictor of future behavior. Well, Your Honor, that's just not realistic. A man does not wake up one morning and become a violent, race-motivated killer. That's not how it works. So that was the argument made by one of the attorneys for the uh, McMichaels talking about the killers of Ahmad Arbery. Now, they, I could say killers. I'm not saying murderers because that's for a jury to decide. But he was killed by Travis McMichael, and Greg McMichael was taking part in the operation to sort of box in Ahmad Arbery. But what's interesting about that statement is, is how— how does a judge determine who gets out on bond, right? Because it, the charges are felony murder. So there are felony murder charges all the time across the state of Georgia. Do people ever get out for it? And is it based upon your life before the, the, the alleged crime? Or is it all based upon the, crime, the alleged crime itself? How do they figure out who gets out, who doesn't get out? Let me bring in Lawrence Zimmerman, president of the Georgia Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, who knows Georgia law inside and out and and knows what's happening day in and day out in courtrooms across the state. 
So, Lawrence, welcome to the podcast, first of all. Second of all, do people ever get released in the state of Georgia on felony murder charges? Afternoon, Vinny. So, first of all, yes. And let me just say that three of the four defense lawyers for McMichaels, the father and son, are former past presidents of the organization I'm president of now. And Jason Sheffield is going to be president in a year from now. So they are very skilled lawyers, great lawyers. I would I would never hesitate to hire them. They know what they're doing. But they're up against a problem here because of very high-profile case. There's race involved. We know that Jackie Johnson took her time and didn't do an investigation, let them go. Um, and so there's they're dealing with that. But yes, I have gotten bond and felony murder cases before. And the issue really is this. Judges aren't supposed to detain somebody as punishment. See, the Georgia Supreme Court has said, and I'm not going to get into the weeds about case law, but has said that bail is preferred. And what do you look at when it comes to bail in the state of Georgia? You look at what they presented, their past character, their ties to the community, whether they have a prior criminal history, like Laura Hogue said, past history is indicative of future behavior. So if the McMichaels have never committed a felony in the past, have never been arrested, why will they in the future commit a felony specifically or especially while they're already on bond for a murder case, right? Um, there's no evidence that they've tried to intimidate any witnesses. They're a danger to the community. I know Jesse Evans brought up the fact that Oh, and Greg McMichaels was interviewed by law enforcement. He said he's former law enforcement. He was trying to influence the police. Now, with all due respect to Mr. Evans, who I know very well, I disagree. I think that's foolish. I mean, if I get pulled over by a police officer, you know, or, you know, years ago, someone rear-ended my car as a hit and run, my dad and I, the cop came to my house, said, hey, I'm a lawyer. I mean, I know how it works. So that's just natural for Greg Michaels to say, hey, I used to be in law enforcement, DA's office. I know how this works. That's just who you are. You're going to take something lawful job you had and you're going to spin that to say, aha, he's trying to influence law enforcement. He's not trying to influence a police officer's job and his decision making. So you look at all these past things, what they've done, as you say, their body of work, who they, who they are in the community. That's what a court is supposed to look at. There are what we call four, four factors in the state of Georgia under, written into the, into the statutory code section for your listeners. And the judge is supposed to look at that. And the state is supposed to prove by what's called preponderance of evidence, which is the civil standard, not a criminal beyond a reasonable doubt, that they do not fit in this, in the, like for example, they're supposed to show the court their significant risk of flight. They have to produce evidence. They have to show there's significant risk of a danger to the community. So where is any of that and any of the stuff you heard in the McMichaels bond hearing? I am not advocating. I don't know the details, whether the McMichaels are innocent or guilty, but that's not what a bond hearing is for. It is simply to decide, like I just said, are they a danger? Are they going to intimidate witnesses? Will they return to court? These guys hung around when, this, when the shooting happened, I guess in February, they hung around all the way until they were arrested. They had an opportunity long before to flee, to do whatever they wanted, change their name. Well, well the argument there is, is that they were gaming the system, that you know they got all these advantages because of who they were. And if it wasn't for that video uh, somehow being uh, leaked, 
to the public and, and then the, the public sentiment, then, you know, a spotlight being put on the case, nothing ever would have happened. But that's not their fault. That's what the district attorney's office decided to do. Now, right or wrong, that shouldn't affect whether they get bond or not. They didn't influence or convince anybody. Maybe they, I mean, listen, maybe they had talked, they obviously talked to the DA's office, but I think that it was George Barnhill wrote that, the, the subsequent DA wrote a letter saying we're not going to prosecute them. So what's the, so what's the, who normally gets bond or who gets bond in Georgia for felony murder? I mean, I, I've, it's a very common charge that's used in Georgia, right, by prosecutors. Well, and Vinny, think about this. People, I got a bond last year in a shooting case um, where my client was accused of shooting somebody um, or involved in a shooting. He didn't shoot the person, someone else did, but he was there. If you don't have people who don't have a record, people who have had no, you know, significant, you know, they haven't gotten any trouble. They haven't threatened any witnesses. I mean, there are cases where you get people who have multiple prior felony convictions and they've tried to intimidate witnesses, you know, pending, you know, their bail hearing. Those people should not get bail. You're supposed to just people in Georgia. And I say this because of the Georgia Supreme Court says that not every state looks at it this way in capital offenses and in all offense, all charges in Georgia, you are presumed innocent at a bail hearing. Now, presumption of innocence applies to a jury trial, but some states, my understanding, don't have a presumption of innocence when it comes to a bond hearing. And I'll say, for example, in federal court, which I practice a lot as well, federal court has the added analysis of um, the likelihood of conviction and the, the strength of the government's case. So the so U.S. attorney will stand up and say, judge, they could say all this, the strength of our case is X, Y, and Z, and you just heard this evidence, and the judge could decide based on the strength. That's not part of the issue in the state of Georgia. That, that doesn't fall into the four factors that I'm talking about. So I think most, most people who don't have- Well, right- let me ask you this. Let me ask you this, because the, the bond hearing, there was a lot of racial overtones and, and evidence put in by the prosecutor making this look like uh, a racist attack. And that's the way it is perceived by, by a lot of people. People have this simple equation. If Ahmad Arbery was white, he'd be alive, period. And that's the way people uh, are looking at the case. That's the way people analyze the case. And um, does that come into play at the bond hearing? If there's any sort of um, a racial issue in- involved in this case, whether it's text messages back and forth with a friend or or your actions that day. Well, look, I don't think I think race is the issue for the trial. I don't think it's the issue for the bond hearing. Right. No matter who was killed, I think the bond analysis stays the same. See, they're trying to take that and play that into the bond hearing to bias the judge for that reason. Right now, with what your prior with with Michael Ayala said, what if I mean, what I do think maybe if they were white, I don't think they would have felt the same. They would, I don't think they would have felt the same permission to go after somebody in the neighborhood. Maybe that would have been different. There's, I say implicit bias, with that maybe explicit bias, but I think maybe their actions would have been a little bit different. But here's the deal. They may have a, a self-defense claim, and usually what you see in self-defense cases, you usually do see people get bond when you have an actionable self-defense claim. Whether the jury's going to find that they were justified, we don't know. But we have this law where you can make citizens arrest no matter how foolish it is. They took advantage of that. And you have potential for self-defense. Those are usually people that really do get bail most of the time. I think it's because of the outrage, everything that happened preceding the arrest, the potential racial issues. And you know this, Vinny, because you're at Court TV and you've covered a lot of stuff. When those cameras are on that judge, 
in a high profile case, it really raises the, the bar. And if I'm getting bond in my felony murder cases that nobody knows about, it's a little bit easier for the judge to sign that bond order, right? It, it is, except uh, in the biggest case, the George Floyd case, all those all four officers are out. They're all out on bond. Right. They're all out on bond. And, and you know, it's a different state, different standard, different judge, slightly different charges, although it's really the Minnesota version of felony murder is what they're, they're charged with. And what I've seen, and, and, and it's a pattern, is that police officers tend to get bond more often in a case where someone has been killed. Well, we can talk about the case here in Georgia. Officer, the Atlanta police officer who shot um, Rashard Brooks in the back got bail. It was a $500,000 uh, bond, I believe. And he got bond. He, he, the judge granted bail. And that judge, she said, I think it was Judge Jane Barrick said in that bond hearing, you know, there's a presumption of innocence here. And, you know, right. And so that should, that should not, it's a good point, Vinny, that should not apply if you're a police officer or anybody else. Anyone who's charged, you're presumed innocent until you're, convicted at it by, by a jury. So it should apply equally across the board, no matter what your profession is, no matter what you do, you look at the factors and that's the deal. And then listen, the George Floyd, you're going to tell me that is any better. They knelt on a guy's neck for over eight minutes while he choked to death. So that's pretty brutal. In my opinion. Let me ask you this, because the, the one big factor when I was a prosecutor was always the prior record, right? To me, that was like the overriding effect. Someone got arrested and they got this huge rap sheet the judge would look at it and adjust bond based upon that or deny bond based upon that. In Georgia, is it common in a felony murder for someone who has no record to not get bond? Well, I don't know every single case in 159 counties in the state of Georgia, but you but, don't. That's why I had you on this on the podcast, Lawrence. I, I, I Wait, talk to your presidential staff and get yeah, them I mean, get the stats, I, I but. Think, Based yeah, upon your based experience. On experience, if no one has a record, usually they'll get bail if they have no record. I don't think that's uncommon or unheard of. Um, I mean, you know, obviously, here and here's here's what I always say, Vinny, to judges when I appear in front of them to argue for bail. Because the prosecutors always want to talk about the facts. And here's what happened. You know, it could be a murder case, a rape case, whatever. And I'll say, listen, I'll say, that's great for the jury. He's presumed innocent because, you know, judge, the, the issue is why even have bonds? Why is there a bond for murder cases? Because if they're just going to talk about the facts of the case, what murder is better than another murder? Someone was killed. So is a George Floyd case any better than the Arbery case or the Brooks case? It's not. Someone died at the hands of someone else. That's not the issue for bond today. That's not the issue to address for bond. That's an issue for a jury. Otherwise, why doesn't the state of Georgia say, hey, for these offenses, you can't get bail at all? That's not the case. And that's exactly why I had... Lawrence Zimmerman on the program today, folks. Lawrence, great to see you again and have you uh, on the podcast for the first time. You're on my TV show all the time. Uh, that is 8 to 11, Monday through Friday, folks, on Court TV, your front row seat to justice. Lawrence, thanks so much. Thank you. All right, folks, when we come back, uh, I, I want to talk about what this case, from my perspective, is really about and why it happened. You know, why is always such an important question when it comes to crimes and, and murders and alleged murders and deaths. And in this case, I think it's all about false presumptions. That's next.
Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. So why was Ahmad Arbery shot and killed? Right, that's a question a jury's going to have to answer at some point. But I look at a case like this, and I, I look at what facts we know, what things are obvious, and, and sometimes I think you can put two and two together and, and figure it out. And I think in this case, it's, it's very obvious what was going on. Ahmad Arbery, and, and this is a, a fact. I mean, you look at the, the surveillance videos. Ahmad Arbery was jogging through that neighborhood all the time, and he would... For whatever reason, and I don't know the answer to this question, but he would go into this house that was under construction because we've seen the videos of him doing it. And why did he go through there? I don't know. Was he curious about watching the development of a house being built? Um, Was he going through there because they had running water and he's in the middle of a six mile run and he wanted to get a drink of water and he knew he could get it in the back of that um, home? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I know every time he showed up, he had like a pair of shorts and sneakers on and a T-shirt, right? And he doesn't have a bag where he's filling up, uh, you know, a bag with stuff that he's stealing. That's just not, it's not in the videos. It's not there. He is there. Now, what we also know is that Travis and, and Greg McMichael knew about these videos and had seen these videos. And there was some talk in the neighborhood about what was going on. And there was some concern about people going into this house. To what level um, that's a, that's a, that's, I don't know. I can't answer the question what level of concern, but there was, and it was on the radar. Okay. It was on the radar that, that someone was going into this house and maybe people were going into this house and the owner of that house was not in the neighborhood. So what level of communication did he have with, with some of his neighbors to keep an eye on his house? Uh, that, that is going to be determined at trial, but there was some level, some level. So we've established that Ahmaud Arbery runs through the neighborhood. He's wearing shorts and a T-shirt uh, most of the time when he's doing it. And he's, he's stopping in that house and had done, done it on multiple occasions. And it was on video. And the McMichaels knew about it. Okay. Now, what else do we know was happening in the neighborhood? We know that Travis McMichael was the victim of a crime. He had a gun stolen out of, out of his truck. He didn't lock the door. Pretty irresponsible as a gun owner to leave a gun in an unlocked car, right? And let's put that aside for a moment, but he's the victim of the crime. So now we get to what I believe this is all about. It's a, it's a case of false presumptions that are made. So Travis McMichael, in his mind, has taken um, the stealing of his gun and somehow connected it to this young man who has been seen on video going into this house that's under construction. And has made the false presumption that the guy who is going through the house that's under construction is the same guy who stole my gun. Okay? He's putting these things together. Much like George Zimmerman years ago put together a false presumption that ended up and resulted in the death of Trayvon Martin. There were a series of burglaries in in, in George Zimmerman's neighborhood. And he saw... Trayvon Martin outside by himself, standing under the awning of his friend Frank Taffy's house. What he didn't realize is that it was raining and 
you know, you stand under the awning of someone's house. You won't get wet as you're talking to your friend on the phone. But that's another another story for another day. But he presumed that the guy he saw standing at Frank Taffy's house had to be the person who was burglarizing all the homes in the neighborhood. He made a false presumption. And that's why he took the actions that he took. In this case, I believe, and it's obvious to me, that McMichaels are taking their actions because they're presuming that this guy who was seen on video is the guy who's jogging through the neighborhood that day. Now, that's actually true. Ahmaud Arbery is the one in the video, and Ahmaud Arbery is running through the neighborhood that day. But then they add on the false presumption that he was committing a wave of crimes in their neighborhood, which there is no evidence of at all. That evidence doesn't exist. So they presume that he stole the gun. They presume that he's burglarizing this home. And then they presumed as he's jogging that he's running away from them and eluding them because he knows he's guilty of something. Now, the next level of questions that you would have is why are they making these false presumptions? And I think there's the same similarity that you have with the George Zimmerman case. And it comes down to the color of the victim's skin. Right. Well, George Zimmerman uh, had sort of a description of of who the burglar was because he had spotted him from a distance on a prior occasion and police didn't show up in time. And the guy got away. And then he saw uh, Trayvon Martin. It's got to be the same one. I remember he had real dark skin. Boom. That's George Zimmerman. Put him aside. So why did they presume? Why did he make the presumption that the person that is is, is jogging through the neighborhood and that is is going through this house under construction on different occasions is the one who stole the gun and is and is responsible for a series of crimes across the neighborhood. And, and this is where people uh, may differ. And at the trial, things will differ vastly, I believe, in the arguments that are made. But I believe prosecutors will say it's because of the color of his skin. And I think a lot of people believe that. I know there's a whole lot of people that believe that. Ultimately, what will a jury think of this and, and how much of an issue does this become? Because to me, this is important because this is the why of it. This is trying to get to the truth of what happened and why it happened. Now, will it play out this way in, in the courtroom? Probably not. I think what the defense will do is, is focus the jury on the two frames of the video that you don't see, and they will argue that um, Travis McMichael was holding his gun. He was pointing it towards the ground. Everything he was doing was lawful at that moment. And then uh, Ahmad Arbery approached him and went after him and went to go grab his gun. And that's when uh, Travis McMichael was exercising self-defense and the gun went off, whether he shot it on purpose or, or it went off in the struggle. That's what they'll argue. But you got to get back to this whole citizen's arrest that they were attempting to make. And why are they making these presumptions, these presumptions that are false? And that's the problem here. And that's the danger when you become the vigilante, when you become the neighborhood watch person and you do more than you should. If you want to be a good neighborhood watch, you've got a cell phone in your hand. Take a video of whoever you think is committing these crimes and send it to police. End of story. We've got to be beyond. You can't be. You're not even catching someone red handed. He's just jogging through the neighborhood at the time. But based upon your presumptions that you've made, we're going to get him because that's the guy. And it ended up the way it ended up. You've got a, a young man who's dead. 
a family who, that, that's grieving, and now you've got a father and son who are facing the rest of their lives in prison, um, one of whom has a four-year-old child who won't have his father around, won't have his grandfather around. I mean, it's, it's, it's so unnecessary on so many different levels, and really, at the end of the day, you've, they've got no one to blame but themselves because they made these false presumptions and took action. You can make the false presumptions, keep them in your head, take a video, send it to police, and be done with it. But they didn't. And, that, and that's going to be their biggest hurdle and the biggest problem that they have uh, when this goes to trial. Anyway, folks, um, great news for you. Next week is Thanksgiving, right? But we've got an encore presentation, and it's all about this case. And it's an encore presentation of our podcast dealing directly with the Ahmad Arbery case where we dive into some of the details of, of what exactly was happening. And I think it's uh, an important episode and is a, is a great background uh, getting ready for this trial, which uh, may very well happen in 2021. And I think it will because you've got uh, three guys who are locked up and they're asking for their speedy trial. So uh, I expect this one to happen next year. In the meantime, have a wonderful, wonderful uh, Thanksgiving week. And um, don't forget you can watch me on TV every night from 8 to 11 on Court TV, your front row seat to justice, where we take a look at all the big crime stories of the day, the trials that we're covering on Court TV, and, of course, looking at those uh, mysteries that are out there, those true crime mysteries. If you don't have us and you've got a digital antenna and you can't find us, rescan that antenna and... I am pretty confident you will find us. In the meantime, I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great, great holiday. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.